So as we go to our Super Bowl parties this afternoon, just beware. If any of you are double dippers, Kurt Jansen might be there. So, as the lights are heading back on, I'd invite you to pull out your Bibles with me. Um, we have been <clears throat> in the book of Acts for a little while, and in a series called um, Growth God's Way. And we have been exploring uh, the question as we kind of walk our way through different sections of the New Testament, starting in the book of Acts. Uh, we've been exploring the question, uh, what are some characteristics of, gr- of churches that experience growth in God's way? That is, what do they do? Uh, what do they don't do? What do they avoid? And uh, we find ourselves in the fifth chapter of Acts. And so if you have your Bibles, uh, turn with me to Acts chapter 5. If you don't have your text, uh, the verses should be up on the screen uh, for you as well. And so we are in part six of Growth God's Way. And in part six, um, we're going to discover that the sixth characteristic or attribute or trait of a church that experiences growth in God's way is that they have what I call a healthy fear of God. They have what I would call a healthy fear of God. And so let's do this. Uh, Let's pray one more time and uh, then we'll dive in uh, to God's word. Father, thank you that we can be here this morning. It's such a privilege for us to come together as brothers and sisters in Christ. It's such a a privilege to to fellowship with one another, to enjoy each other's company around the common bond of faith in Jesus Christ. Father, thank you that you have made us a family uh, through the cross of Christ. Thank you that you have reconciled us to yourself uh, through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, through his death in our place for our sins, and by his resurrection Three days later, you have reconciled us to yourself. You have given us eternal life. You have caused us to be born again. You have regenerated our hearts and made us into new people. And you continue to do this work through the spirit that you have left here and allowed to indwell us, to make us holy and to make us Christ-like. Thank you, Father, that you reconcile us to you and that you also reconcile us to one another, that we can have healthy relationships, that we can love one another as, uh, as a brothers and sisters and fathers and sons, as a family, the family of God, the church of Christ. Spirit, would you come now? Would you help us uh, to have ears and hearts that are attentive to your word? Uh, we would echo the words that we have sung, that you um, would speak, O Lord. Uh, to us through your word this morning. Help us uh, to set aside the things that are um, upcoming or the things that are on our hearts and minds, that you would focus us and that you would help us to receive your word and to be changed, to be challenged, to be rebuked, to be changed, to be transformed, uh, to be trained, and to be equipped by it. This is our heart's desire. Father, help me as well. Um, Spirit, please uh, help me to speak that, that which is accurate and true and good in your power. Change us by your word, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. So uh, we all, I think, get a a nice laugh over someone uh, like the gentleman in our video who is exposed uh, for being a hypocritical uh, liar over such a small thing as a social uh, faux pas uh, like double dipping. Um, 
we can kind of get a laugh at that. And uh, some of the things that stood out to me in the video is that the chip must be pure. I think we would all agree that the chip must be pure. And uh, the challenge that I think uh, the video offered to us is that we would consider um, areas in our lives, uh, secrets in our lives, things that we um, don't want anyone to know about. And so while we get a laugh over someone being exposed in, uh, in what I would call a, a hypocritical lie, this morning we're going to hear a story about a couple a Christian couple in the early church that also gets exposed. Um, We're going to hear a story um, about a couple by the name of Ananias and Sapphira this morning as they also get exposed in hypocritical lying. And so it's not It's not going to be quite as funny as we get into the book of Acts this morning. And so um, we're going to hear this story. And the amazing thing about this story, while it's a tough one and it's a challenge one, and I think it has some serious implications for us as followers of Christ, uh, the amazing thing that I think, I hope we can see in this story is that God um, uses even events, even uh, things in the church like Ananias and Sapphira, to bring about good, and to continue to grow the church. And so this morning, the sixth characteristic of churches that grow in God's way is what I would call a healthy fear of God. Uh, If you have a spiral notebook and you're taking notes and you want to know kind of our outline, a pretty simple outline this morning. Uh, The first section we're going to talk about is uh, verses 1 through 11. And in verses 1 through 11 of chapter 5, I've entitled it, uh, The Sentence of the Couple. The Sentence of the Couple. And so we're going to hear and see the story of Ananias and Sapphira and God's uh, sentence uh, of discipline on them. And then the second major section is verses 12 through 14. I've entitled it, uh, Its Significance to the Lost. Uh, That is, we're going to see the significance of God's divine discipline on this couple as it relates to unbelievers, as it relates to uh, those who are not yet followers of Christ um, in this early church setting in Jerusalem. And so um, we're going to take a look at those two kind of sections, and then we're going to talk about some applications. And I'll have two or three, uh, maybe four, um, hopefully practical applicational statements uh, for us to consider and chew on. So let's go ahead and dive in this morning. Uh, Verses 1 through 11, we see the sentence of the couple, and we see the story of Ananias first. And so we see the sentence of Ananias in verses 1 through 6. So let's go ahead and read that together. Verse 1. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have continued this deed, uh, excuse me, contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. 
And so in verses 1 through 6, what we get is the initial introduction to the story of Ananias and Sapphira, the sentence of Ananias. Um, There's a lot that can be said here. I want to point out just a few things, uh, hopefully to clarify and uh, to help us lead towards application. So the first thing that I want us to notice is that the sin that was mentioned, uh, what it was that they did wrong was that, uh, what I would call, they lied in hypocrisy. They were hypocritical and they lied both to the Holy Spirit and to God and to the apostles. If you read through that section again, you'll notice that what Peter's response is, is that they lied. They did not represent what they did accurately. Um, you'll notice uh, that this is not necessarily a a text or a sermon about giving. I think some people want to make this into, you know, giving and those kind of things. This text is not at all about what was given. Uh, What we see is that uh, what was wrong was not the fact that they kept back a portion of this land. If you read a little bit prior, what you'll find out is there's a description of the early church and the activity that was going on in the early church. And basically what was happening is that as the church had need, as there were people who had legitimate needs in the church, there were other people who maybe had houses or land. And what they would do, uh, like Barnabas is a positive example of this, a few verses before, is that they would sell their land. They would sell their property. And what they would do is they would take the proceeds or the profits of that land and they would go and they would give it to the apostles. And the apostles would then kind of divvy it out as anyone in the church had need. And so what happened is that this couple, Ananias and Sapphira, thought that this would be a good idea. And we don't exactly know the details of, of what happened, but what we do know is this, is that they hatched a plan together to sell their land, to make X amount of profit from that land, and then what they were going to do was keep back a portion of it. They were going to keep a portion of the proceeds, and that was not wrong. What was wrong is that they then presented their gift to the apostles as if... It was the whole amount of the sale. Basically what they were doing is they wanted to be recognized as Barnabas was earlier, as others were earlier, of, uh, as being generous people. They wanted people to know and to think that they were giving all of the sale of the land. They misrepresented what they did. They lied to God and the Holy Spirit and to Peter and they persisted in this lie. And I call it hypocrisy because their motives were impure. They wanted to be recognized. They wanted to be known. Secondly, um, notice this interesting detail. Their sin and their lying and their hypocrisy was satanically influenced. Did you notice that little uh, bit in the text that they were influenced by Satan? Notice what Peter um, told them. He essentially said, um, Ananias, why has Satan filled? Notice that word filled. Why has Satan filled your heart? to lie to the Holy Spirit. And this is significant because in that moment, these believers were not yielded to the power of the Spirit. They were yielded to the influence of Satan. And as a result of yielding themselves to satanic influence, they lied. Interestingly enough, if you remember last week, what happened is that the church prayed and they asked God for boldness. Remember that? They asked God for boldness in chapter 4, verse 31, and they, and they prayed, and the Spirit came upon them in a mighty way. The text says that they were filled with the Spirit, and they spoke boldly. Well, here, in great contrast, they were filled with satanic influence, and they spoke a lie because Satan is the father of lies. And so they were influenced by Satan. Number three, third thing I want us to 
to notice was the result. What was the result of this divine discipline of a believer? This man, we have every indication is that he was a believer, a part of the church. Um, what was the result of this discipline from God? Well, we'll notice at verse 5 that it says, when he fell down, uh, the Ananias, he heard these words and he fell down and he breathed his last. And notice this, <clears throat> a great fear. We're going to see that phrase repeated again. It's the point of the passage. A great fear came upon all of those who heard of it, certainly within the church and probably most likely outside of the church. Word got out that this happened to these believers who were in hypocritical, consistent, rebellious sin. And so what I would say is that the result was a healthy fear of God. I think that this fear that it's referenced here, this great fear that came upon the church, I think it's a reference to a fear of God. Um, If you have your Bibles, flip ahead with me in the book of Acts to to Acts chapter 9. This verse won't be on the screen, but in Acts chapter 9, verse 31, what you'll find is another summary statement. Luke has these summary statements throughout the book of Acts. And in this summary statement, we get our uh, very next reference to fear, to the church being characterized by fear. And I think this is pointing out to us that the fear that they had was a fear towards God, was a fear of the Lord. Verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And notice this. And walking in the fear of the Lord. And walking in the fear of the Lord and, this is significant, in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. And so what I want us to see is that I think this reference, this fear that came upon the church as they saw one of their brothers and sisters um, lose his life at the hand of God as an act of fatherly discipline. The result was what I would say a fear of the Lord. A fear of the Lord that they feared his holiness. They feared that he was God and that he was holy. You could say that there was a healthy fear of his prerogative to divinely discipline rebellious believers. I think they had an intuitive, maybe a more intuitive sense or awareness of their own sin. And so the, the result of the sentence upon Ananias was a fear of God gripped the church, and this was a good thing. Let's move ahead in verses 7 through 11. We have heard the story of Ananias. Next we see the sentence of Sapphira, his wife, a very similar uh, account. And so let's read in verse 7. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And notice this, and great fear came upon all, came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. And so we hear the story of the circumstances surrounding the sentence. 
of Sapphira. Again, it's a very similar account, uh, but let me just point out a few things that I think are significant. Uh, Number one, notice what Peter did. She came in and he asked her a question. And I think what he was doing, he was asking her about the selling price. He said, did you indeed sell it for such and such? Because he knew and the other apostles knew what they claimed that the price was, and it was a lie. And I think by asking her this question, he was giving her a chance to repent. I think what he was doing is trying to encourage her, so to speak, um, to tell the truth about their deception, to tell the truth about their lie. He was giving her an out, I believe. And so he asked her the question, is this what you sold the land for? And he wanted to know if she would repeat the lie that her husband had given And as the story goes on, uh, we see that she did. She repeated the lie. And so um, she could have told him the truth. She could have repented at that point. She could have spoken truthfully. Um, But she continued on in her lies and in her hypocrisy. Uh, Second, I want us to know, uh, notice this little phrase. Uh, It describes their actions. It describes what Ananias and Sapphira did by these words. They tested the spirit of, of the Lord. Did you notice that? Peter says, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord or to, or to test the Lord? At first glance, it's, uh, I kind of looked over this. I didn't notice it at first, but as I continued to study and look into it, this is a really significant phrase because what Peter is describing both to us and to Ananias or Sapphira in that moment was exactly um, <clears throat> a description of what they were doing. When you look throughout the Old Testament and also in the New Testament, this phrase, when it says God's people test the Lord, it's a description of someone, of a believer, essentially pushing the limits of God's patience. It essentially describes an incident when someone sees how far they can go, how much they can get away with regarding sin and rebellion before God judges. And so we see that God, at this point, it indicates that God had been patient with them. It indicated that he had withheld his discipline of his children. It indicates that he had given them time to repent because the image is that of God is waiting. He's waiting. He's waiting. They're testing him. They're testing him. They're continuing on in rebellion. They're getting to the point. They want to see where that line is to where God then says, enough is enough child. I will give discipline as we hear uh, God does in Hebrews chapter 12. And so to illustrate this, I'm sure um, any of you who have children or who have related to children at all can probably relate to this. But, um, you know, when you have kids and you're a preacher, like they automatically become sermon illustrations. (laughs) So uh, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but it is what it is. Um, And so my son, I think, uh, is a very good indication of this. Um, And this is something that he Uh, unfortunately, is very bad at. And so, for instance, uh, it happens probably most often when it's time to change his diaper or maybe time to change clothes, you know. I don't know if my two-year-old is like every other two-year-old, but um, when it's time to change the diaper, he doesn't have... He's not interested in that. He doesn't mind, I suppose, what he's sitting in or what, you know, what's going on down there. He just wants to play. And so he doesn't want to stop. He doesn't want to change his diaper. And so it's kind of a fight for us to, to do that sometimes. And so what will happen is we'll get him ready and we'll set him on the bed in which we change his diaper on and it's a bed. And so we lay him down and very oftentimes he'll, he'll lay down and give me this smile 
and he'll get right up and run as far away as he can, you know, to the other side of the bed, and he'll say, jump, 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 or naked boy, I'm naked boy, or whatever. And, uh, you know, it's very clear that he doesn't want to sit down and get his diaper changed. And so, you know, inevitably what happens is I say, Asher, we need to change your diaper. Come here. And so I'm giving him a command in that moment, and ideally I want him to look at me, and toddle right over and lay his booty down and to get it changed. That's what I want to happen. It hardly ever happens. And so I'm probably a bad parent in this regard, but I I give him a little grace. I'm like, ah, sure. What happens when you disobey mommy and daddy? And he looks at me and he says, big spanking. (laughs) And I say, that's right, big spanking. Do you want a big spanking? No. Okay. Asher, come here and lay down. And so, uh, unfortunately, at that point, I probably need to grab him and swat him. Um, but it probably repeats itself one or two or maybe even three times. And inevitably what happens is I say, Asher, you're getting a spanking. And, and so I, I kind of climb up onto the bed because he's on the other side. And I start to grab him. And in that moment, guess what he does? He toddles over there and he lays down, right? And so early on, I was like, okay, that's fine. And Shelly's like, no, he disobeyed. We have to, I'm like, you're right. And so we spank him anyway because he disobeyed. And then, well, you know how the rest goes. Um, uh, but that's, that's what he's doing. He's testing the spirit of his daddy, so to speak. He's pushing the limits. He wants to know how far he can go in his rebellion and in his sin until there is discipline that happens. And the text says that that's exactly what these early believers were doing. They didn't want to have their divine diaper changed, if you will. Um, And so that's what's going on. Third, the third thing I want us to see is that uh, both uh, with Ananias and Sapphira, while it's not overtly clear, I think it's fairly clear that what God was doing was that he was setting the tone in the early church. Remember, this is the very first days and weeks of the church. This brand new infant of an organization, an organism called the church, is being formed and God is forming and shaping this church, the bride of Christ. And I think what God was doing, regardless of whether we like to acknowledge it or not, is that he was setting an example for the rest of the church. I think it's clear from the fact that Luke emphasizes twice that the result was a fear that came upon the rest of the believers. That was the point. That was the purpose of what God was doing. He was setting, I believe, an example through the life of these two believers. Dr. Constable, I think, has a helpful comment here. He says this, He said, we should not interpret the fact that God rarely deals with sinning believers this way as evidence that he cannot or that he should not. He did so for those who would follow, notice that, he did so for those who would follow in the train of those disciplined to illustrate how important it is for God's people to be holy. And I think that's exactly what's going on here. Um, We have this illustration that God, as a heavenly father, sometimes disciplines his children. We see that. Go home this afternoon before the Super Bowl. Read Hebrews 12, and you get a clear description of the fatherly discipline 
of our Heavenly Father. And I think this is exactly what's going on here in this story. Um, And so I'll share an illustration uh, along these lines, although it's not perfect and it shouldn't be pushed to the limits. Um, But I think God was setting an example in establishing a tone, a healthy fear of sin and his holiness in the church, a fear of God. Um, My freshman year in high school, we uh, got a new athletic director and we, uh, his name was Mr. Davis, and I won't forget him because I did not like him. <laughs> um, he was a mean guy. That's all I have to say, is that he was just a mean guy. But he was a good coach. Unfortunately, that's how it normally is, right? Um, but he was a great coach. He was a very good athletic director. He did wonders for our little small school that I went to, to uh, school in. But he was a mean guy. But... Here's kind of what the way it went down. He introduced this idea, which I don't know if it would ever go over anymore, maybe in Texas, I don't know. But he would, um, as a disciplinary measure within the athletic program, give us SWAT. He had a paddle, and all of the coaches were okay to use it, given particular, you know, it was very clear what the offenses were, you know what I mean, that constituted that. I guess every, our community okayed it. I can't believe it happened, to be honest. But, but that's how it was, and everyone was okay with it. Um, except for, you know, the athletic guys' rear ends. We weren't okay with it. But, uh, so to make a point, uh, and so we all knew the rules, right? And the very first instance of someone being disciplined was uh, a guy that I knew. We weren't best buds, but he was a tough guy. You know, he was just a tough kid. Tough inside linebacker, football. I mean, we, we respected this kid. He was tough. And uh, I, don't, I forget what he did, but he did something. He broke the rules, and I think, um, to set a precedent, um, the athletic director gave him the first SWAT, and I think he probably gave him a little harder SWAT than what he did you know, from there on out. And I remember, after this friend of mine got his SWAT, he came back into the locker room, and he was on the verge of tears. And this is a guy who was, you know, inside linebacker guy. He, did, he, did, he didn't cry, and he's like... That was good. Don't do what I did, you know. And to make a point, although not perfect uh, illustration here, obviously, um, there was a tone set early on in the athletic program that we respected his authority, that we understood uh, his conditions, and there was, you could say, a healthy fear of him. Obviously, this illustration breaks down. It's, it's not perfect. But I, I think you, you see the point of what I believe God was establishing here in the early church. So we've seen the sentence of the couple. We're going to move on here. The last two verses I want us to look at, we're going to see what's the significance. We've seen the significance in the early church. There was a holy fear of God in the church, and it was a good thing. But, But what's the significance to those outside of the community? I mean, how did it affect What's the result of the perception of the church? What's the result of unbelievers coming into the church? And I think we'll find it shocking, I guess, maybe uh, is, is a good word to use. And so let's read together verses 12 through 14. Verse 12, Now many signs, another summary statement, Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. 
And they, referring to the church, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. If you remember back in our story, we didn't read it, but back in Acts chapter 3, this is where Peter and John healed the lame guy. And it says that the early believers were gathering in this location, in the temple, uh, Solomon's portico. And so they continued to use this location as a gathering point, if you will. So they were all together in Solomon's portico. Verse 13, none of the rest, and this is what I want us to see, none of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, notice that, more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. And so I think what we see here in these verses is the significance of this event in particular as it relates to those outside of the church. Uh, Let me point out a few things and then we'll get to some applications. Uh, Notice in verse 12, it says, signs and wonders were being done by the hands of the apostles and they were all together in Solomon's portico. As As I mentioned before, that refers to the whole church. And so the big group gathering, they met in this place. They met in Solomon's, excuse me, portico. Secondly, notice the contrast then in verse 13. It says, none of the rest, none of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in, in high esteem. This is kind of a curious statement. I ran across this and I, and, and I thought, well, I think I know what it means, but what, what does it mean? What's, who, who, who's being referred to? So I did some study and it's very clear that none of the rest is a reference to those who are outside the church. It's a reference to unbelievers. When you look at this Greek phrase, none of the rest, and it's, cousins, if you will, um, what you find out is that throughout the New Testament, it always refers to those who are outside the faith. It always refers to unbelievers. And so what we see going on is this. Verse 12, all of the believers were gathering together, but the unbelievers, they did not dare to join them in their public gatherings. Now, isn't that an interesting statement? They, They didn't dare to join to identify themselves with the followers of Jesus in the church. They didn't dare to do it, although they respected them. The people held them in high esteem. And while it's not said, I think the context is very clear. The reason that they didn't do that is because they knew what happened to Ananias and Sapphira. They knew that this God and that this Jesus that the church was serving cared about sin and was holy and cared about hypocrisy and rebellion. And so they didn't want to identify. How opposite is that than our seeker-friendly churches today? How opposite this is. And then notice, this is what gets me even more. Third point, the church grew more than ever. I want to read, uh, read this, again, quote by, the, by a guy by the name of Bob Deffenball. He Helpful here. He says, The saints, that is the church, the believers, and particularly, particularly the apostles, were held in highest, high regard by the unbelieving community. But as unsaved, they, uh, those outside the church did not have the courage to join the saints as they gathered. The holiness of God is a dreaded reality to those who live in sin. And I think that that's what's going on. But amazingly enough, so if you didn't read the next verse, if you didn't read verse 14, what would you think would be the consequence in the church? The unbelievers were scared to publicly identify with them because they served a holy and awesome God. 
you would think that this would drive unbelievers away, wouldn't you? I mean, if something like this happened in our church, uh, God forbid, you would think that unbelievers would be like, I'm not, I'm not ever following Christ. I'm not ever going to believe in him. I'm going to get as far away as possible. And, and initially that, 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 was, that was true, and yet there was something that was attractive. There was something that drew unbelievers. There was something authentic and real that the church offered as they had a fear of God. It's, it's astonishing. And more than ever, you know what that means? There were uh, 3,000 people added at the very first day. And then Paul, Luke indicates that more and more people, uh, because of signs and wonders and miracles, remember the apostles were doing wonderful things in the midst of unbelievers, but that was not the biggest growth tool of the church. It was what happened with Ananias and Sapphira. More than ever, the church grew. It's amazing to me. The church grew. And so applications, as we wrap up. Uh, I've got three, maybe four. Uh, number one, jot these down if you're, if you're writing some notes. Number, number one, fear of God takes hypocrisy seriously. Fear of God takes hypocrisy seriously. Um, in this context, there's a lot of images and ideas that come to play when we talk about hypocrisy or being a hypocrite. But here, as it relates to those in the church, this hypocrisy was essentially people in the church, believers in Christ, wanting to look and portray themselves to other people as more spiritual than they actually are, as having a greater commitment than they actually do. And so how can we do this? I think that we are all prone. I look at my life and I want you guys to think that I am there and mature and, and all of that stuff. And you do too. I'm going to throw out some examples here um, as it relates to giving because to some degree this is uh, what happened in this context. As it relates to giving, this looks like uh, several things. It could be as we're talking in our small group and the idea of giving to the church or tithing or whatever you want to say, that being generous comes up. We may talk about it, that it's important. We may affirm that it's something we should do. We may even talk about some of the things that we have done or are going to do in a Sunday school conversation, in a small group. Uh, for those of us on the board, in a board meeting, um, we give it lip service, but if someone was to look at our checkbook, and I'm not talking about amounts, I'm talking about us talking like we give more than we do, and talking like we give when we actually don't. We want people to look well upon us. What about in worship? Um, this could look like a lot of things, but we may want to preserve our image when we come, and we may close our eyes, we may bow our heads, we may lift our hands, we may do whatever it is that we do as we worship, and we may um, be full of anger and bitterness and hatred in our hearts, and come on a Sunday morning and put our face on, and we want people to look highly of us as if we have it all together. Maybe uh, the ride to church that morning with your spouse was less than ideal. Maybe some of the words that you shared, for whatever reason, uh, was less than holy or, or, or godly. And uh, yet we come to church and we hold our spouse's hand and we smile. And not that we should necessarily uh, duke it out, you know, in the midst of, uh, you know, my sermon or anything. Um, but, you know, w there's this perception that we, you know, we want people to look, 
We want people to look upon us favorably. So a fear of God takes hypocrisy seriously. And so I want to ask you, as your pastor and someone who loves you and someone who has played the hypocrite myself, um, are you in the midst of hypocrisy like Ananias and Sapphira? Are you um, wanting people to look upon you better than you are? Are you in the midst of rebellious, defiant sin? Number two, a healthy church has a healthy fear of God. Not only does the fear of God take hypocrisy seriously, but a healthy church has a healthy fear of God. We walk in the fear of the Lord. And I don't know about you, but when I hear that the early church had a fear of God and comfort of the Holy Spirit, I so want to be that, and I so want grace to be that. I want us to take sin seriously. I want to take my sin seriously. I want me to take other people's sin in the relationships that I have seriously. Um, I want us to fear God in a healthy way. I want us to respect him and love him and like a father to a son that there is love and comfort but there's also a a healthy fear there. Um, Talking about fear of God, Jonathan Edwards, he's an 18th century pastor, writer, um, wonderful guy, Um, In his resolutions, he says this, and I think it describes this idea of fear of the Lord well. He says this, resolved, resolved, never to do anything which I would be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. Um, That, I think, is what it means to have a healthy fear of God. And so, do we take sin seriously or lightly at grace? Do we put up with it in our lives and in the lives of the brothers and sisters that we've earned the right to poke poke and to prod in? Another question I think we can ask of ourselves and of our church is, do we look any differently than our unbelieving friends? When we look at my life and your life here at Grace Bible Church, Is there anything that marks it? Is there anything that is distinguishing? Is there anything that is unique? Is there anything that is attractive that would distinguish my life and your life from the lives of our friends who do not know Christ and don't give a rip about the things of God? Do we look any differently? Because I think a church that has a healthy fear of God, our lives look differently than others. Um, Let me share this quote with you. A.W. Tozer Um, One of his books is out on the stand. I highly recommend anything he has written. He says this, and I think, although he writes several years ago to the church, it's fitting today. Religion today, religion today is not transforming the people. Religion today is not transforming the people. It is being transformed by the people. It is not raising the moral level of the society. It is descending to society's own level and congratulating itself that it has scored a victory because society is smiling, accepting its surrender. I wonder if that's true of our church today. Is Are we transforming our culture and our society or are they transforming us? Are they smiling? Is Cisna Park or wherever you may live, is it smiling, accepting our surrender? Are we so pleased with uh, the fact that we are loving and gracious and, and all of those things and welcoming and we should be. 
but has it caused us to just not care about holiness and sin? I hope not. I hope not. So in closing uh, this morning as we wrap up, um, I don't know about you, um, if you are a double dipper or not. I'll admit that I have double dipped before, but only in my own house (laughs) and only with my own cheese dip. So rest assured, if you invite me to your Super Bowl party, I will not double dip. You know, whether you're a double dipper or not, um, my prayer is that, uh, and you get caught doing it or not, my prayer is that there would be no Ananiases among us and that there would be no Sapphiras among us and that we would not get caught in hypocritical deceit when it comes to our spiritual lives. My prayer is that we have a culture and a church that's characterized um, by a healthy fear of God. Because what we see from this text is that if it does, and if we do, we're not going to run people off. People aren't going to be flocking away. What we learn from this text is that a healthy fear of God promotes growth. God blessed it more than before. And so that's my prayer and my hope this morning is that God would bless our church indeed more than he has as we pursue a healthy fear of God. Would you pray with me?